Secondly, has science disproved God? That's our, that's our question. So uh, perhaps you could come up one at a time. First of all, Steve, would you like to come up? Steve, uh, <laughs> Professor Steve Chambers works at the Otago Medical School um, and is a researcher, has PhD students under him. His area is um, immunology and infection and things. Germs, he said to me earlier on. Germs. So it's good to have an expert on germs here tonight. But also I've been part of a faith and science dis discussion group and Steve is very active in that um, and so he's got a lot of interest and, and, and knowledge in the whole area of science and faith. So welcome, Steve. Next person is Ron Hay. And I should say, yeah, give it up for Ron Hay. Uh, do you want to sit here, Ron? Just a thought. Uh, Ron is a reverend. He has been a vicar in the past. He's a retired vicar. He's also an author of an award-winning book, which he has a copy here, entitled Finding the Forgotten God. And many Christians and other seekers have found a lot of benefit from that book. And I'd, I hope you, you know, give it a promo a little bit later on, Ron, because I think it's a very worthwhile book. And I know Ron has written about science and faith, so I know he knows a little bit about it too. So welcome, Ron. We're so pleased that you both have been able to come. Please take a seat. And finally, Mandy Caldwell, Dr. Mandy Caldwell. Yeah. Fantastic. So Mandy has done a PhD in evolutionary biology and reptiles and all kinds of interesting things, and a bit of climate change tucked in there as well. So she is a graduate of the University of Otago and the University of Tasmania. So welcome, Mandy. You also, I understand, have an interest in science and faith. So I'm just going to give you the handheld mic, Ron, if you could take it there. I've got a list of set questions for us tonight, and hopefully we'll have time later on to have some questions from the floor, because it's quite possible that you'll have a little question that comes into your mind as we go through, and if you don't think it's been answered, we'll give you an opportunity later on to, uh, to ask the question, and we'll see what the panellists make of it. Okay? I'm going to start with a quote, just to set the scene, and this quote is from a book called The Twilight of Atheism. The rise and fall of disbelief in the modern world, which might seem a weird sort of title because most of us think that it's not happening, but Alistair McGrath, the author, thinks it is. But anyway, he's got a chapter that covers this kind of topic, and he begins the chapter like this. One of the most remarkable developments of the 19th and early 20th centuries has been the relentless advance of the perception that there exists a permanent essential conflict between the natural sciences and religion. Science is at war with religion, and that war can only lead to the elimination of religious belief as a relic of a superstitious age that is now long behind us. Science proves things, whereas religion depends on the authoritarian uh, imposition of its dogmas, which fly in the face of science. To take the idea of God seriously is to commit intellectual suicide. So um, that's a very provocative beginning, and we're here, of course, because we're people of faith on the whole. I'm sure there might be some seekers among us, and that's all good, but we're here to address that and engage with that question, because here at Antioch, we are a learning community, and we want to learn new stuff, and we want to be equipped to answer questions that come to us in our daily lives. So this is the night for science and faith. So first question, um, <clears throat> just to, an introductory question, and I'll start with Ron, you've got the mic. How did your interest in science, how did that begin briefly? 
Um, well, I feel a bit of a charlatan here because I'm the, the only non-scientist. Uh, That's to... why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the layperson amongst the, the scientific experts. But really, um, through trying to uh, make faith credible and understandable to secular Kiwis, um, I just realised what a big issue it was. Science fascinates me, um, even though that's not my prime field of expertise. Uh, I'm fascinated by it and, and the things it's uncovering and, and revealing. And I think in, in the last century, there have been major scientific discoveries that point to God rather than point away from God. And, and that's particularly fascinating. And uh, we can talk about some of those uh, along the way tonight. Thanks, Ron. What about Mandy? How did you first start getting interested in science? Um, like any good Kiwi kid, I often had dirt under my nails. I was in the backyard from a very young age trying to figure out where, where the bugs lived, all of the different kinds. And much to my mother's disgust, I would bring them in the house. Um, so I found as I grew up that love of bugs and creatures and plants and nature didn't go away. So I just, I had to get some of these questions answered. What I found along the way was actually I just ended up with more questions to answer um, as a scientist, but um, it did lead me all the way to doing a PhD in zoology, and I just love science. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Um, well, those are, those are interesting answers. Um, well, when I was at school, my best subjects were chemistry and English, and I couldn't, I was no good at maths, so I thought, oh, well, I'll be a doctor instead. And basically... Um, <laughs> You know, I found I was actually quite good at doing that. So, okay, uh, cool. And as I went through medical school, I found that, um, you know, I, I, I did some um, summer studentships and found that I was actually quite good at doing science as well. So mm. it sort of developed from there. Fantastic. Well, hang on to the mic, uh, Steve. Uh, second question, what is science? What is science? And what's it, what is it based on? Let's get back to basics and, and try and answer that question initially. Well, I think science, in a sense, um, is um, examining reproducible events. Uh, so you set up some parameters and you poke it and you see what happens and it's got to be reproducible. If it's not reproducible, then it's outside of science, which actually automatically means that you can't study things like miracles or the resurrection because these are not reproducible events. So mm. it's really about trying to... Um, understand basic mechanisms mm -hmm. of uh, the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not usually much about meaning, although sure. we can think about that a bit more. Sure. We'll come to that. Mandy? I like what he said. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It's about looking at things that can be proven or disproven, setting up hypotheses and um, creating tests that can disprove them. And then once you've got all that data, you need to be able to write it up into something resembling a, a scientific paper. So those contain introduction, method, results, conclusions, and then that gets peer reviewed. So I guess I'm talking about the scientific process. Sure. Um, and if you want that published, you have to get that past your peers, and that's a really rigorous process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So essentially you're saying it's a public uh, it is in the public domain. Domain, yep. so it can be checked, yep. and it's very rigorous. And it should That's be repeatable. Yeah. Great. Ron, can you add to that? What is science? Um, I think it's the systematic uh, exploration of the natural world. Mm. Uh, you know, that we, as human beings, we just have this curiosity as to how our world functions mm. and how it works. And uh, so science is very much looking at what's uh, called empirical evidence, you know, things that we can that are perceptible to our senses. And mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's kind of a systematic study uh, of repeatable events, yes, mm. things that have to be reproduced by experimentation. Mm. Well, we'll flow straight into the next question. What about the achievements of science? Tell us about your percep perception of those. Well, I, I think they've been absolutely huge, uh, particularly in, in the last century. We've just seen ginormous leaps forward as a result of science and modern technology. Uh, medical science, for instance, uh, you know, just, just huge leap forwards in terms of what science is, um, and modern medicine's been able to do. We, we've seen, you know, within 100 years, uh, humans taking off from the ground and then exploring space. And, I mean, I think it's quite dazzling. And, and in a way, I think it's, in terms of the growth of atheism in our society, it's kind of understandable that people are dazzled by technology, by scientific achievement, mm. and think, you know, we're the measure of all things. Mm. And mm. it can produce a kind of a human pride, mm. I guess. Mm. But... Um, yeah, it's kind of understandable. Mm. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, I mean, the advances of science are all around us. And, um, yeah, there are the amazing ones, like vaccines that cured smallpox and um, other big things. Going into the stars is pretty exciting, but you can see the evidence of scientific um, progress, you know, lights, the cars that you drove here. And probably one of my favourites is um, the formation of the Intergovernmental Panel for climate change that brought together people from all across the world, uh, 195 countries, I think. And they look at all of the scientific research that there is out there and they are drawing conclusions. Every five to seven years, they put out these reports to say, this is what we think is going to happen into the future. And I guess I'm excited that those kind of reports could lead us to make um, progress on trying mm, to solve mm, some of the bigger mm. issues that are facing our time, mm. like climate change. So, yeah. So science can help resolve some of those real big challenges that we see. Yeah. Sure. I'll just point to one thing, particularly from my own experience. I'm basically an infectious disease doctor, so when I came back from the US in 1987, I set up the infectious disease unit at Christchurch Hospital, which dealt with the AIDS epidemic. Mm. So that was my sort of primary thing for mm. many years. But the amazing thing then was seeing what science did to produce drugs which would um, suppress it or not you mm. know, cure it, but you can control it and have a normal life. So, I mean, these were just startlingly yeah, effective things. Yeah, so yeah, just yeah. In my own We're experience. all beneficiaries of science, aren't we? Sort of standing on the benefits of science. And it's, it's important to, to recognise that, that, that we really do have the kind of life we, that we're living because of those achievements. Um, so, Steve, just hang on to the mic. Can you tell us about the limits of science? Well, I think the uh, science always needs interpretation. I mean, evolutionary theory needs interpretation as well because it's changing. There's new insights going along. So, I think as, as you know, quantum theory comes along and it gets reinterpreted over time as to what it means. So, it's a mistake, I think, to think that science has told you what the absolute truth is at this moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it always needs some further thought, um, <coughs> mm -hmm. and other things come to light. And I think that it's very poor at um, offering uh, meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think mm -hmm. that we, that science does not tell you whether God loves you. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, and the meaning of science actually I think is, a, a, the pursuit of science becomes an end in itself, mm -hmm. unless it's within a context mm -hmm. of a larger uh, framework of mm -hmm. meaning, mm -hmm. uh, which I guess is where I would put my Christian faith, is giving mm. that larger context cool. of meaning. Thank you for that. Um, Mandy, what, what are your perceptions of the limits of science? I'd, I'd have to agree and, and probably follow on maybe with an example. So you could see a, a jug 
boiling on the stove. Well, science could tell you a lot about what, what's happening there, the process of heat exchange, how much steam might be produced, um, and how long it would take for the jug to boil. But it can't tell you anything really about why the jug is on the stove boiling in the first place. I'm making a cup of tea for my mum. So it deals really well with questions of how, things that we can measure, um, but it has real limits when it comes to dealing que uh, with questions of purpose and, mm. and the whys of life. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. And Ron, the limits of science. Yes, that's a John Polkenhorne example, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I would very much agree with what Mandy said, that science uh, tells us a lot about how, uh, but it doesn't answer the why questions. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? Why, why is this world here? It, it can tell us uh, quite a bit about physical origins, but not the purpose behind things. Mm. So it's, it's kind of those first order questions, you know. Um, what is the good life? Where do I find fulfillment? Why, why are we here in this world? Mm. You know, mm. those are key things that science cannot answer. And I think just to deviate from my script a wee bit, science by definition uh, deals with a reductionist kind of process where you're getting down to very, very limited questions just so that you can repeat them. But it's not as good at addressing the, the bigger overarching questions, which by definition are not reductionist, they are overarching. Mm -hmm. And so science kind of pushes us to look at tiny little things without necessarily the connections between those tiny little things. Yes, chip in. I think one of the key things is, to me is that I don't think science gives you an adequate, adequate kind of concept of what man is. Uh, what you have is, uh, one of my friends from Niwa tells me, we're nothing, nothing but a collection of atoms that we're you know, interacting with the floorboards. Mm. Well, hang on, that's not good enough. <laughs> Human beings are different from that. Yeah, yeah. They, there's a much bigger meaning for man. And, mm. and I think as it's um, put forth in the Gospels, and I think the resurrection is very important because it, it nails down, it mm -hmm. emphasises that, yes, human beings do have some mm -hmm. particular meaning in the long-term mm -hmm. scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're companions for Jesus Christ. Mm. I mean, what a wonderful calling that is. Yeah. We're nothing but a pack of neurons. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> I don't like that at all. <laughs> I think that's. I'll just, can I tell you a little story? Yes, please. Uh, well, look, the, the thing is this um, if you, uh, a bee going to fertilize the um, coffee plant repeatedly goes back to the flower because it gets a buzz out of the caffeine in the coffee flower which goes to show that your and my brains are very similar to a bee in its basic structure. However, that is not an adequate description of things. Okay. Uh, neurology, the, the, um, the, all the mechanisms are there, but it's not an adequate description of what mm. happens with the mm. uh, fulfilment of human beings. Mm. Mm. So uh, a reductionist description is just mm. not good enough. Mm. Thank you. Okay, Mandy, um, I'll put you up first on this next question. Um, why do you think there is this perceived conflict between science and faith. Well, I mean, there have been an awful lot of scientific discoveries over the last few thousand years, and as things have been discovered, it's really challenged a lot of commonly held long-term beliefs, like the world is flat. That was a tricky one to accept, <laughs> that it's not flat, um, and that the world is round. When Galileo, um, oh, sorry, that the world orbits the sun. When Galileo first introduced that concept, he was really um, ridiculed by the Catholic Church uh, because it seemed to be at odds with our Christian faith, and it gave us a lot of food for thought 
in terms of, well, actually, what are the bounds of our faith and is that really what how mm-hmm. we should interpret the Bible? Mm-hmm. Is there mm-hmm. more to it? So mm-hmm. there is a need for a dialogue between scientists mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. faithful community in order to try and get these ideas mm-hmm. yeah, hashed mm-hmm. out. Yeah. So historic uh, events that sort of somehow get lodged into the public yeah. Um, consciousness that yeah. there is this huge conflict. So, Ron, can you add to that? Um, I think it's part of the conflict from one side, from the, from the scientific side, comes when uh, scientists kind of see science as not just explaining, you know, the phenomenon of our physical world, but they turn um, turn their their naturalistic worldview into a philosophy of life, and that there's nothing beyond nature. Uh, there's nothing beyond the, the purely natural. There's, there's no supernatural. There's no transcendent dimension. So that's that's uh, science. Then becomes not just uh, a method for studying the world, but becomes a philosophy. Uh, that's an anti-God philosophy. But on the other hand, there, there have been Christians who have have kind of fostered uh, an atheistic view by their rejection of of science, and uh, you know. Christians who um, reject the idea of the Big Bang, for instance, because they think it means a chance event. But actually, the Big Bang very much points to a creator, um, that there was a a beginning, an absolute beginning. There was a time when the universe did not exist, Mm. and that really has theistic implications, but Mm. some Christians don't see that. Mm. So sometimes the church itself doesn't help its own case. Okay, so we've got an argument from history and also current theological trends in certain Christian quarters. Uh, would you like to add to that, well, Steve? I think probably evolution needs a bit of a mention just there because I think <laughs> right. uh, that has been, in my opinion anyway, quite corrosive on a lot of belief. And part of the underlying thing about that is that it seems to imply um, direction and purpose or accounts for apparent purpose uh, by completely random and, and physical means. Um, and is that really true? And this is, view is particularly popularised by Stephen Jay Gould, who some of you may have heard talk. I heard him talk at Canterbury University. He was out here as uh, a living treasure for our sesquicentennial uh, celebration. And mm-hmm. he basically, his basic view is that if the evolutionary tape was rerun again, you'd get a completely different outcome and you wouldn't have anything like human beings. Now, if you are a, a Christian view, you might feel that, that human beings have a particular... Um, mission and stewardship ordained for us by God to do. On the other hand, there's another way of interpreting the data, actually. Um, and I just, if anyone's really interested, there's a, an author called Simon Conway Morris, who's the uh, professor of paleontology at Cambridge University, who has been working away at this, saying, no, that's not really right. Actually, it, uh, evolution, yes, it's real, but it navigates its way through things in an amazingly efficient way. Uh, and actually, sentience, us, it's very likely to be the inevitable outcome mm, of, mm. of the way evolutionary mm. processes work. Mm, mm. In fact, it's completely astonishing when you look at it because mm. there's likely to be a Goldilocks effect around how evolution has worked, mm. not just a Goldilocks effect as to where we sit in, mm. in the created physical mm. universe. I could expand on this at length if you like, <coughs> but you probably don't want me to. So we'll just tease this out a little bit more. So there's another sort of question that relates. Why do you think some people assume science has disproved God. Is there other thoughts around that? Why do you think some people assume science has disproved? I meet people after funerals all the time, and they'll strike up a conversation, and nine times out of ten, 
they'll say to me, I really believe in the church, great values, etc., but you really don't expect me to believe there's a God behind all that. I mean, it's such a common thing these days. Or that somehow science and, and faith are completely at odds. Mandy, do you want to address that? I, I've seen that quite a bit too. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably because science has kind of explained so much of what we mm -hmm, see. Mm -hmm. So all the way from a few seconds before the Big Bang to like making accurate predictions that turned out to be true about the future, mm -hmm. science has done a lot. Uh, so I think that in... In the face of so much data, some people are starting to say, well, we don't need a God mm -hmm. because we can explain sure. everything. I think that, mm. that Kim, I'll, I'll add, that that doesn't really make sense because the very um, basis of scientific method is to deal with hows but not whys. And when you think about the nature of the Big Bang, you got something from nothing. I mean... You, it's fair enough for people outside, you know, to step outside their scientific um, perspective and say that invokes a deity to me, some kind of god. You can't get something mm. from nothing. Um, mm. and, it, and it's a fair, yeah, it's interesting that mm. people could think that there's so much information that we don't need God. doesn't make mm. sense to me. Mm. Yeah. Ron, can you add, why do you think some people assume science has disproved God? Well, I think people have, have been told, told this in the media so much. Uh, you know, the new atheists, the so-called new atheists, Richard Dawkins and, and his friends, have had so much publicity. You know, Dawkins has come to Christchurch a couple of times and filled the town hall, and, and he's a real evangelist uh, for atheism. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, well, he's obviously a prominent scientist, and, and we sometimes think that, you know, that gives a person a special authority. Uh, but I think, um, you know, thinking about the existence of God, uh, an analogy that's, that's very, been very helpful to me is, is to think, you know, there's no way that science can prove or disprove the existence of God. Mm. It would be like a character inside a novel uh, trying to prove or disprove the existence of the author. And, and that's impossible, you know, they're, they're in that fictional world. There's no place outside that fictional world where they can stand mm. uh, to get perspective on that. Mm. And I think that's a very good analogy for, you know, the C.S. Lewis uh, used that a long time ago. It's a very good analogy for God's relation to our world. Uh, you know, he's the, he's the author of it all. Mm. Um, but nobody within the novel can prove the author. Uh, just so, prove. So along that argument... Um, those who, who, who feel that God has been disproved uh, are bound by the, the, the worldview of the, the novel and they can't see be, somehow see beyond right, that. Right. So they're sort of, yeah. Okay. Uh, what about Steve? Anything further to add? Why do you think some people assume science has disproved God? Um, I th well, I think partly again coming back to the evolutionary thing is, is the problem <coughs> of so-called so problem of pain. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, lots of people suffer miserably and you say God loves you, well, hang on, what about mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously bound up in the whole evolutionary idea is that uh, the survival of the fittest, so to speak. Um, so I think that a lot of people might feel that that was sure. a challenge. <coughs> yep, yep. Not no, just proof, but a challenge. You challenge, know. yep, yep, absolutely. Okay, let's, um, Mandy, do you want to tackle this one? What are the crossover points, if any, between science and faith? Is there a point at which... Science and theology, for example, can have a conversation, or is it two separate worlds completely? This is a bit of an easier question. Thank Great. You. Yeah, I like this one. Yeah. Um, Get into it. 
I definitely, there was a time when I was like, does science and faith go together? It seems like maybe it doesn't. But the more I delved into it, um, because I did have a lot of questions, like I said, (laughs) um, I realized that actually science and faith are quite complementary and they have things to say to each other. So um, what do I mean? Science informs my faith. When I find something new out uh, about an organism or if I observe the diversity that there is out there, um, it leaves me feeling awe-inspired and excited about <laughs> about life and living. And equally, um, my faith informs my scientific drive because otherwise, if I don't have my faith, what is the purpose of all of this trying? Like, why are we trying to mm-hmm. try to fix the world? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sure. And I guess I would go further and say we have a God-given mandate to pursue science and find things out and try to fix some of the things we broke um, Mm -hmm. because we were placed as caregivers, caretakers in the first place. That's great. So a lot of crossovers. Yep. Ron? Um, I think one thing science does is it enlarges our view of God. Uh, You know, our universe has got enormously bigger than the the universe that people inhabited in the Middle Ages. Um, I, I was just hearing recently, you know, It's only 20 years ago that we discovered exoplanets, planets uh, circling other suns in uh, in the universe. And uh, now I gather there's something like 10 to to the power of 10 exoplanets have been discovered, uh, you know, as um, the power of telescopes has grown ginormously. So, you know, our God is just so much bigger than, than we've ever conceived uh, in the past. And, uh, but another thing I think that's really important is that modern science really grew out of a monotheistic worldview. It was impossible in a pagan polytheistic worldview because um, in that worldview, there was no regularity, you know, you, um, there, was, there was no uh, kind of consistency to the world. And, and it was sacrilegious, too, to explore it. You know, if, uh, if uh, Pan was, was the god of the forest, you know, it, to saw off a um, branch of a tree and analyse it, that was kind of a sacrilegious thing to do. But Christianity said, uh, no, God is separate from the world, and he sustains it, but he mm-hmm. is separate. There's mm-hmm. nothing irreligious about examining mm-hmm. nature. And that really fostered the growth of science in, in the 15s and 1600s. Uh, in the 16th and 17th century. It was a key factor. Um, people have written about um, famous uh, history historian of ideas, Alfred North um, Whitehead, talked about uh, Christianity or Jude- Judaism and, and Christianity being the, the nursery bed of modern science. And mm. I think that's true. Mm. Okay, I'm going to jump right to the next question, actually, Steve. Um, so can science support our faith in God? Yes, well, um, oh, that's a tough question, isn't it? Um, I don't think you should be looking for proof of God in science. What I do think, though, is that there are some overlaps and parallelisms mm-hmm. which allow you to, uh, one, to inform the other mm-hmm. a little bit. So... Uh, or substantially, really. Um, it just seems to me science on its own is a very bleak, nihilistic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, on its own, it, you know, actually, yeah, it's pretty bleak, melancholy thing. Why do you say that? Well, if it's, if it's all just purposeless mm-hmm. and... Um, but it's dazzling at one point, though, isn't it? Y- yeah, but as you think... The achievements. Beyond, 
and it's seductive in the sense that you know might want to draw you into it, but mm -hmm. actually, if it's kind of purposeless, well, mm -hmm. gee, okay. I just think it's a cool. little bit. We shall go home, exactly. It'll be much easier not to go to work in the morning, actually. Okay, thank you for that. Look, we'll go to the very last question now. Mandy, do you want to start with this? Because I do want to have um, opportunity for other questions. So what advice would you give someone who was troubled by the apparent conflict between science and faith? Um, I would say engage with the conversation that's being had. There's a lot of people talking about this whole topic. There's a lot of information on the internet too, though, so be um, be discerning about where you're getting your facts from. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and mm -hmm. probably if you're finding that it's getting a bit much, which it can when you're in university and maybe you've got a lecturer who's not so sympathetic towards Christians, um, it helps to write down the questions and actually really formulate what it is that's kind of eating away at you and then just try to systematically work through those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of lecturers, yeah. you were you referring to that time? Well that, <laughs> do you want to just share that? Because I think that could be quite uh, helpful. When I was an undergrad at Otago University, I was sitting in a um, lecture theatre. My evolutionary um, lecturer was talking, and he just started basically putting Christians down, like, who are these crazy people who still believe in this? And I was sitting there, I think it was in my second year, pretty vulnerable. I was already getting hassled by um, people from my church who were seven-day creationists um, about what I believed. Well, what I, I didn't even know what I believed at that point. Um, so I was kind of finding I was getting crunched from both sides and hearing it from a lecturer mm, who I mm, really respected mm. uh, just left me feeling like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I think. Mm, mm. And I felt embarrassed, too embarrassed to stand up and be like, actually, mm. <laughs> you know, you think of the, these things you could have said at the time. but What would yeah. have helped you at that point? Because um, that's so similar to what many of us have gone through, felt belittled and under-resourced to answer a particular question. What would have helped? Well, I think that's tricky. I think I would have already needed to be ready with an answer for for those specific comments. And there are answers out there or, or things that you I could have said. In that context, I was a pretty vulnerable little student. And sure. um, he had years behind him and was highly respected. So mm. um, probably having the confidence to know that there isn't just one view out there. Mm -hmm. There is more, yeah. And lots of, and even amongst scientists, there's scientists who have said to me, "Oh, you know, the Big Bang, it does leave me with questions." Um, and then there are others who are closed-minded. Mm, so mm. there's a real range. There is. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. How would you uh, help a person with those kinds of questions? Yeah, I, I would say read R E A D. You know, that there's just heaps of really helpful. Uh, literature mm. in, in the area of, of faith and science. Mm, mm. Um, just to mention a few names, John Polkinghorne, a famous physicist mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the UK, is, is now uh, become an Anglican minister. And he's written a number of quite small, very readable books on the interface of science and faith. Mm. Um, thinking about the evolution area, uh, The Language of God, um, written by... Um, forgetting his name, the uh, director of the Human Genome Project. Crick. Francis Collins, Collins. Sorry. thank you, thank you, yes. That, that's just very readable for, for the non-specialist and very, very helpful in terms of the whole mm -hmm. um, evolution creation debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there, there's just a heap of good things out there, but... Um, and there's certain chapters in your own book, Ron, that Well, that's be... right. Yeah. <laughs> just if you, if you want just the... a thought. If, if you want the condensed version, uh, I do have a chapter on uh, Has Science Killed God? 
And there's also a chapter on Genesis creation and evolution. And uh, the second one I've, I've actually uh, put a, a reading list of really helpful things at the back. So in a nutshell, read. Steve, final word. Well, no, I absolutely agree about that. I mean, uh, to my, I've been to a couple of conferences which have been very helpful as mm -hmm. well. I mean, if anyone happens to be in Cambridge, it's a fantastic thing. They run every uh, every June, which I really had a great time at. <laughs> um, oh, cool. And met Alistair McGrath and met um, yep. uh, someone called Morris and a whole lot of other wow. really able people. You suddenly realise there's a whole lot of fellow travellers out there yeah, yeah. who have got much bigger brains than you have yeah, yeah. and they've thought a lot about it and there's other ways of thinking about things mm -hmm, yeah. and uh, often have very quite inspiring faith stories. Mm -hmm. Actually, the last one would be uh, um, Andy Gosler, who some of you may have come across. He's mm -hmm. on, uh, you heard him interviewed by um, Kim Hill on mm -hmm, the radio, yeah. if you haven't heard that. Um, and can I just tell you yeah. about him? So uh, he, uh, his basic work was on um, kinship in, in birds and the aunts would look after, you know, the um, sisters' children, um, birdlings <laughs> and so on <laughs> in the famous Witham Woods um, studies that are done outside Oxford. Um, and he saw this as you know, quite a limited thing, actually. It only a couple of, you know, it wasn't the whole population, it was just a very limited thing. But Richard Dawkins quoted him very dramatically in his book. And he was so annoyed by this, he thought he'd find out what these rotten Christians were so bad about them. So he started actually investigating it and realized just how limited Dawkins' view of the world was and how very limited uh, his interpretation of, of his own data was. So, I mean, that really got him annoyed. So then he actually became converted and, and he's now ordained as an Anglican priest. So yeah, yeah. Um, just to let you know, there are other ways of looking at things. <laughs> That's right. Don't get stuck in one okay. model. We've got... Could I mention one other resource? Um, just uh, the Faraday Institute at Cambridge University. It's a Christian think tank. Um, Christians in, involved in, in science, and uh, there's a heap of things online that you can access, some, some quite relatively short pamphlets that they've produced on key questions. That, mm. Those are excellent. We could uh, um, put together a menu of those kinds of resources and get it around everyone through our networks. That's a great... I mean, there's the Veritas Forum. There's a whole lot of them uh, that are very helpful. Okay, so um, who would like to ask a question? At all, you can address it to a particular person or just a general question, Rex. Well, now you have. <laughs> um, you sort of kind of skirted around this question I have, um, and I think it would kind of answering it would kind of get to the crux of some of the ways you could respond to people who have that alternative view, and that is that um, through the centuries, particularly recent centuries, um, scientific discovery um, and and development of science were actually done by deeply religious people. Um, you know, you mentioned Galileo, um, Darwin was religious, Einstein was quite religious. Um, and so, and, you, and, and Ron, you mentioned, you know, science was actually being born out of a, a monotheistic um, worldview. Um, so uh, given that, what brought about the divide? I mean, science was always part of Christianity, part of religious thinking and developed by people who, who thought religiously. Mm -hmm. So what, what sparked this great divide in a group of people who were scientists who decided that, you know, um, Christianity was, wasn't, wasn't correct? Yeah. Who would like 
We kind of covered part of that, but you might like to say something more. It's called the conflict myth, yeah. and it's been studied by historians, and it is, it is a myth mm -hmm. because it's not based on factual events in history. That's what I would say to it. But, mm. Ron, you might have something more. I think there's more than just an intellectual question in that um, there are many people who don't want there to be a God because, you know, that destroys their independence, you mm -hmm. know. And, and that comes out in the writings of, of the new atheists. Uh, you know, one or two of them have said, you know, I, I don't want there to be a God. You know, I, I want to be ruler of my own domain and I don't want there to be somebody I'm accounted, accountable to one day. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a, a spiritual dimension of the heart mm -hmm. there as well as the intellect. Mm -hmm. I think there might be a, a divide between atheists and Christians, maybe, but science and religion, there's no issue there. No, as far it's as that embedding of that, it is. It's of that myth within our culture, like which overlaid, is a bit of not, a mystery, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, another question, we'll keep it moving. Could I just, just say, just, just a word about the myth. Um, uh, Mandy touched on Galileo, and I think that's a myth that, I mean, the, the story of Galileo is presented, you know, is a a battle between light and darkness. On the one hand, you have enlightened rational science, and on the other hand, you have the benighted church, you know, with all its dogmas. Uh, well, actually, it's, the story's not like that at all because Galileo was a very committed Christian, and it was really a debate within the church as, as to how to interpret the Bible, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, when the Bible talks about, you know, the sun running its race. Mm -hmm. and, and the people uh, who were opposed to a heliocentric, sun-centered universe were actually very much trapped by Aristotelian philosophy. Uh, it was really an Aristot uh, Aristotelian worldview as much as anything. So, I mean, and, and that's, that story has just been kind of contorted and turned into this mm. black versus white. Um, okay. Thing. Thank you, Ron. Uh, a question from over on this side. We've had this side. Anyone? Any questions? Catherine? How do us non-smart science people support other people <laughs> to have these conversations and to do that work, but if that's not where we're at, how do we kind of spur you guys on? Uh, Steve, would you like to? Hmm. Um, gosh, it's such a big topic, and I think Ron was sort of partly touching on it before. I feel quite alarmed at times of what I hear coming from uh, some sectors of a very um, narrow view of, um, of interpret biblical interpretation. I think this actually can back to part of your question, because in my view anyway, the Bible is literature, not a science manual. And you've got to get the literature genre right. And you've got to mm -hmm. think about mm -hmm. how, the, how the message was received, um, not only how it was delivered, but how the cultural context of the people as they received it, because that would have brought into light a whole lot of things. So sure. I think there's a, there's a temptation. Um, you, know, you know, you could say, wow, look. You know, what's the New Testament about? About a virgin birth, a whole lot of miracles, someone rising from the dead. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's it's pretty easy to um, take a pretty um, glib and kind mm. of um, superficial view of that. Um, so you've got to start going down to some layers. But what I do think is that um, we need to engage with uh, in schools and other areas um, mm. a little mm. bit more. Mm. Um, one of the things which um, we've been trying to do is encourage... Um, 
sort of Christians and science thing to, to to engage a bit with some of the chaplains at the universities to try and make sure that there's they can see that there's a another route to talk about some mm -hmm. of these questions mm -hmm. rather than just being mm -hmm. involved with that. Mm -hmm. um, high schools, I think, is mm -hmm. another potential area. Mm. I was just shocked, actually. One of my friends was at a particular school and he came back and he said, these these Christians, they can't think. Why am I Why would mm. you want to be involved with them if mm. you're taking a sort of a seven-day mm. sort of... Um, uh, Absolutely, you know, creationist view, sure, sure. Um, and I, I found it really shocking, actually. So somehow engaging a little bit more yeah, around yeah, this is yeah. quite important. Mandy, would you add something to to Catherine's question? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so how can you support your science friends? <laughs> I, li I like that. Um, <laughs> I think you've touched on it. We're being willing to engage. Um, seriously with some of these questions mm. because um, when you're kind of crossing to somewhat different domains, especially when there's some perceived tensions there, it can be quite a, a struggle, especially mm -hmm. if um, you're only starting out in your faith journey and you're mm. like trying to sure. figure out if you think there is a God. Um, and if you have someone specific in mind, do a bit of research like, mm. and be ready mm. with the answers. Mm. Yeah. So I'd add that, um, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I mean, I have an engineering background and I moved to theology. Um, but just because I'm not a scientist doesn't mean I'm not really interested in science. And I can read about stuff and I can get the, the language and the grammar and, and be able to be in a, in a conversation with a scientist. Uh, I think we need to, you know, you know not, not be defensive exactly, yeah. And, and try and bone up. It's not, um, you know, we, we shouldn't be passive, we should be active. I think um, a lot of our, you know, unbelieving friends—they're they're lovely. We love them to bits. They're not nearly as as active in thinking about why they don't believe. We need to be on the front foot. Why do we believe? What are the reasons? It's a rational thing. Yes, we we have an experience with God, which is uh, subjective and it's personal. And it's and it's very important. But our faith has two domains in a sense. There is the public and rational domain, and we must not. We must never withdraw from that and let other people occupy that. We need to be on the front foot. So yes, there are really good reasons for faith. I'm not tucking my brain away when I go to church. That is not what's happening. So someone from over here? Oh, John. Um, and Steve, you were talking about the a couple of times the, the physical resurrection and the, and the miracles. And I'm wondering if a stumbling block <coughs> for people looking at the Christian faith are in fact those very non-scientific Events. So in a sense, though, we've seen God is the giver of scientific laws, and yet, when looking at resurrection and miracles, those scientific laws are suspended. So, how do how do we deal with that? Philly? Well, that's a great question. I'd love to answer it myself, but um, <laughs> perhaps Ron, you yeah, want to? Well, I guess my reading of the New Testament comes back to it, and, and you read it with a, a faith eye, of course. But nevertheless. What I think is when I read the New Testament, I see a very um, beautifully, often very beautifully written and consistent um, uh, account that comes up to the resurrection, of the story of Jesus' crucifixion and the resurrection, and suddenly it's sort of all over the place. And you think, hang on, this hasn't been constructed by people. This hasn't been woven into a beautiful text the way Luke is or Matthew is. And you think... They're trying to describe something they've never seen before. Mm. They're really trying to tell you. And then they say, well, hang on, who's this guy, Jesus? And, you say, and they say, it was the most miraculous thing in my life, living with him for a period 
And I look at some of the um, the miracles and I say to myself, what is he trying to do here? What's, what are the authors trying to tell us? Is he telling us that um, the, Jesus and himself is reconciling all those excluded people from society back into God himself? And I think that's what he's doing. It was a leper? Yes. Actually, one of my other things I do is I work for the Leprosy Foundation, do a little work in the Pacific on that. Um, is it is it the woman who um, you know had the bleeding? She was not allowed into the temple. She couldn't be linked into God. It's a story of, in a sense, about relationship with God being restored. And I think mm. that is actually what the whole of the New Testament mm -hmm. is about. Mm -hmm. So I, I see. I don't take a very literalistic mm -hmm. interpretation of things. Um, I don't say these things don't happen. I think they probably did. But what I do think is it's illustrating the way in which God's reconciling power is working through a whole lot of layers in society. Mm -hmm. And um, and I actually, you know, I think, well, gee, I'd like to be part of that too. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Um, we'll go to Mandy. Um, resurrection, suspension of physical laws. What's your take? Well... I, I think this is where you've got the howls of science that science deals with, and this is maybe where faith steps in with the wise, because miracles and the, the resurrection, that, those are one-off events. Like, you can't replay those and examine mm -hmm. them. It's a great point. And try to disseminate them. You have to deal with those with more of a faith eye. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's what I would say. Thank you. And Ron, uh, last word to you, sir. <laughs> There's, there's this kind of myth around in society that, um, which is fostered by you know the new atheists, that um, science is, is about evidence, faith is about belief in dogma with, with no evidence. But that's just totally untrue. I mean, the resurrection is absolutely central to faith. And what you hear through the New Testament, through um, the Gospels and Acts and, and the letters, is that the, the early apostles... Uh, claiming to be eyewitnesses to just something that's so extraordinary that they never expected it themselves. You know, they, the early disciples weren't expecting Christ to rise from the mm -hmm. dead. You know, mm -hmm. you see that on the, in the Road to Emmaus incident. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. No expectation whatsoever. Uh, but again and again, it, it, it comes, comes out, you know, what we have seen and heard, we're telling you. Mm -hmm. And there's very good evidence for the resurrection mm -hmm. if, if we look at it and examine it. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a classic book written years ago called "Who Moved the Stone" by, by a journalist, and and who you know was just you know came um, without any real commitment initially, and was just so convinced by the evidence that he considered. Okay, I think um, time has moved on, and I would really like us all to thank our panelists very much in the usual way. <clears throat> Thank you for taking time, and I know, Ron, you've travelled some distance to be here all the way from Castle Hill, and Steve's also travelled, so thank you very much for coming and sharing. It's been very enriching. It's been a, a dynamic kind of dialogue and, and, and discussion, and um, if you know, they'll be around for a cup of tea and that sort of thing afterwards, so please, you know, let's keep, keep the conversation going. And Ron also has copies of his book, Finding the Forgotten God, addresses many of these questions and lots more. Besides, it's a great read, a very exciting read, well-written read, and very encouraging. So thank you. Sure. Okay. So approach Ron if you want a copy uh, after the service. Thank you.